Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, welcome to Weird House Cinema. This is Rob Lamb. And I'm Joe McCormick. Yeah, today we have uh, another fun collision of B-cinema genres here. What happens when you take... Italian cannibal exploitation films, and you cross them with a good old-fashioned nom-sploitation film, as in Vietnam, and then you go ahead and just set the whole picture right here in Atlanta, Georgia. Uh, one thing I will say about this concept is it does not sound like it will be under-seasoned. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, how tenderized would you say this film is? Oh, my God. It has used the spiky side of the meat mallet. It has covered everything in, in pineapple puree. Uh, <laughs> it's going to be uh, it's going to be fork tender. All right. The film is Cannibal Apocalypse. The original title uh, in Italian, Apocalypse Domani, which uh, I believe is Italian for Apocalypse Tomorrow. Oh, yes, yes. It, so it took me a while to understand this title because I actually watched this movie. Uh, so... Uh, this was your pick. You handed it off. I watched it last night, and then I immediately started watching it a second time after I watched oh. it the first time uh, with the with the commentary track that's actually on the disc that you rented um, by a film critic and historian named Tim Lucas, who's written a lot on uh, exploitation cinema, particularly Italian movies and Jallo and, and stuff like that. And I know he wrote a book about Mario Bava that is uh, that is pretty popular. But anyway, I, I might mention some more of Lucas's observations as we go on because his commentary track was pretty good. But like I said, I was watching this and I kept trying to understand the title, Cannibal Apocalypse. See, I, I would have expected with that title that the movie would be a little more apocalyptic, but there's not really anything apocalyptic about it in either sense of the word. So not the original literal sense of apocalypse, meaning a, a revelation or unveiling. There's nothing really revelatory about the movie, nor in the common understanding today having to do with the end of the world. It's not really an end of the world movie. But then I realized, oh, it's called that because of Apocalypse Now, the Vietnam movie, right? So what comes right. after Apocalypse Now, Apocalypse Tomorrow, Apocalypse Demani. Uh, so if you want to cut right to the quick, what you actually do is you take one word from the title of a recent popular movie with similar themes, and then you take another word that is a lurid conceptual hook word, like cannibalism. So you end up with cannibal apocalypse. It would be kind of like if you made a movie today called like The Necrophilia and the Furious or something. <laughs> uh, and then other there are tons of connections actually with – other Vietnam movies, but mainly with Apocalypse Now. For example, the main character in this film, what's his name? His name is Norman Hopper. I think it's pretty clear where this comes from. It is a combination of Norman Bates, the main character in Psycho, and Dennis Hopper, the actor in Apocalypse Now. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's a good point. And it is the, the sort of role that Dennis Hopper could have conceivably played. You know, you could imagine him playing this sort of character. I guess you could. That would be very different. I mean, Dennis Hopper... Mm -hmm. is. He's notable in Apocalypse Now for being wild. You know, he is on a permanent trip and he is fully in the thrall of the warrior poet uh, of, uh, of Marlon Brando's Kurtz in the movie. In this movie, the main character, Norman Hopper, is very much on the edge. But because it's cast as John Saxon, John Saxon has an undeniably uh, even-tempered, steady kind of presence. I mean, he, he he's an extremely grounded actor. And that's contrasted with some of the... Uh, the very like rat like energy of of characters in this movie, such as the 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 character named uh, again, this is really the character's name, Charles Bukowski, exactly the same <laughs> as the name of the author and poet. 
Oh, but, but, but we're, we're burying one of the leads here. Uh, so this movie, you can't just have two names for a movie that, you know, was oh, an no. Italian exploitation movie released in 1980. You've got to have at least like six names, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. It's it's also been released as Cannibals in the Streets, which, okay. weirdly enough, is the main title for the film on its IMDb listing right now. I feel like this was surely not always the case. I think I, because I've been aware of this film for a very long time, but just had not sat down and watched it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think it used to just, it used to just be listed as um, Cannibal Apocalypse, because that is its its most famous name, I, I yeah. thought. But then again, I think Michael Weldon in the Psychotronic Video Guide also lists it as cannibals in the streets. So I, I don't know. I think it also got an American R-rated release. So it was released with, in, a, in a somewhat edited form, uh, especially in the southern United States, under the name Invasion of the Flesh Eaters. Is that right? Or Flesh I be- Hunters? I believe so, yeah. And it may have been released. It was released in... Um, to the German market with with several different titles as well. So mm-hmm. it's it's definitely one of these films that's often referred to as a video nasty because it was yeah, I think it was banned in the UK for a period of time. Um, though it is interesting how you assume that the pictures are that are classified as such that they're all going to have like the same level of of nastiness to them. Uh, and it's really not the case. Um, I I think one of the things about this film is that Yes, it has its grotesque moments and themes for sure. It is not a family movie by any stretch of the imagination. No. But it's also not nearly as as bad as or and when I say bad I don't mean um quality wise but just in terms of taste. It's not it doesn't nearly have the level of bad taste that it certainly could have had. And it's going to be fun to discuss why that seems to be as we go through this episode. I don't think it's the only reason, but one that has been mentioned uh, in in several sources I came across is just the influence of John Saxon being in the lead and repeatedly saying about things he was asked to do by the script, no, I'm not doing that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Seemed to be a, a moderating influence on the content of the film. That's what you when you when you cast John Saxon, you know you're going to get a certain level of energy from the performance and intensity. Uh-huh. But yes, you're going to get you're going to get some uh, some other grounding influences as well, which ultimately makes this a better film, I think. All right, well, let's talk just a second about these these different genres that are colliding here. First of all, I mentioned nom exploitation. Uh, these elements align with the various Vietnam action films of the day, uh, including both numerous U.S. films and then international films that were clearly springboarding off American pictures. Uh, for instance, some of the American films, particularly films that dealt with Vietnam vets returning home and dealing with uh, with uh, post-traumatic stress to some degree or mm-hmm. another. Uh, you have yeah, you have like Deer Hunter in 78, also Coming Home in 78, starring mm-hmm. Bruce Dern, and even 1982's First Blood. Yeah, I guess the first Rambo movie would fit more into that category, though it's funny, with even within the progression of the Rambo movies, you see the change in how Vietnam subject matter is dealt with. Like earlier on, I think you get more of these movies that are – uh, you know, dealing with some of the with some of the horrors and the moral ambiguities of the war, and then later on turning uh, the lingering residue of Vietnam more into just kind of like pure exploitation action cinema subject matter. Uh, so, like Rambo, by the time you get to First Blood Part Two, Rambo, mm-hmm. the character of John Rambo has gone from a you know a a brutalized man who just wants to be left alone and has turned into a like a human slaughterhouse who you know the, the point of the movie is to watch his greased up muscles as he just guns down millions of enemies. 
<laughs> so like in the first one, you were asking the question, is, is Rambo okay? I don't think he's okay. And yeah. in the second one and on from there, Rambo's doing great. Look at him go. Yeah. All right. So we have those elements in the film and we'll talk about some of that. But then, of course, also it's in the title. This is a cannibal film and cannibal films at their, their absolute worst. They tend to be movies that follow a basic structure where modern day explorers or journalists or, you know, whatever their case may be. They're traveling to a remote part of the world and they're encountering cannibalism and cannibalistic violence as practiced by an isolated tribal group. I've long known there were a bunch of movies like this, but I've never really watched any of them. It's one of those that just seems conceptually just like not enjoyable at all to me. Yeah, yeah. They've, you know, they're often marketed for their just sheer shock value. Yeah. Uh, that was part of their appeal, and it remains part of their appeal for people who, who dig them today. Uh, they can, of course, be very exploitive. They can be very sleazy. They include such films as uh, Sergio Martino's Slave of the Cannibal God from 78, Umberto Lindsay's Sacrifice from 72, which I think was the first major Italian cannibal movie, Umberto Lindsay's Eaten Alive in 1980, and so many more. But the most notorious example is, of course, Ruggiero uh, Diodata's Cannibal Holocaust from 1980, notable for its extreme violence and gore as well as animal cruelty. Yeah, I remember actually, I think maybe even like reading some sort of like film scholarship about that movie when I was in college. It, it seems like the kind of thing that is maybe more interesting as like subject matter for film criticism and film historians than it is actually something you would ever want to sit down and watch. Yeah, I, I agree. And I'll, I'll get into some some of the scholarship about it, though. I'll also point out that when I was when I had decided, like, yeah, I want to check out Cannibal Apocalypse. I pulled up what I thought was Cannibal Apocalypse online mm -hmm. and it was Cannibal Holocaust. So I ended up watching the first five and a half minutes of it, uh, which uh, which are actually pretty goofy and don't have any cannibalism in them. Uh, but that is as far as I can recommend anyone watch in this film. Once I realized, oh, this is not the film. This is not John Saxon. Uh, mm. I cut out and uh, and actually sent an email to Videodrome, our local video store, to make sure they had a copy of Cannibal Holocaust for us. You mean no. Cannibal Apocalypse? <laughs> cannibal Apocalypse. See, I'm doing yeah. it again. It's so easy to get them confused. So if you hear me reference uh, Cannibal Holocaust again uh -huh. outside of the context of that film, I probably mean Cannibal Apocalypse. Well, I mean, it's I think it shows what these titles have in common, which is they're just trying to like jam your radar with the most shocking words they can possibly fit into a title, like ultimate shocking title density. Yeah, I mean, it's all about the shock. Yeah. So uh, for a little more, it was interesting, though, because you, you can engage with these films at the shock level and all. But then I'm, I'm also thinking, like, why? Why cannibalism? Why were these cannibalism films so big at the, in the time? So I was reading Cannibalism in Literature and Film by Jennifer Brown, uh, which is a, a really interesting book. You can you can pick this up as an ebook, um, for example. Uh, but the author argues that much of what we see in this in this genre, especially the colonial cannibalism film, uh, as opposed to the domestic cannibalism film. So again, think, are you encountering cannibals in Texas, as in the Texas Chainsaw Massacre? Or yeah. are the characters traveling to some, you know, former colonial holding um, uh, some, you know, nation that was under uh, colonial rule and encountering cannibalism in those settings? Right. Yeah, I see the distinction. So Brown's argument is that these colonial cannibalism films are probably resulting from post-colonial anxieties in the West and media coverage from this time period, you know, especially like the late 70s, early 80s and so forth, um, of political and social unrest in parts of the world previously under colonial rule. 
Quote, amidst the litany of atrocities arose the feeling that without the civilizing arm of British colonial law, the world had descended into chaos. And they also explain that there, there, there's this familiar trope of the cannibal other in all of this, of course, as well as a specific variation on colonial cannibalism based on U.S. foreign policy and its ramifications. So imagining audiences already have a kind of embedded colonial mentality, like the, mm-hmm. this fear that people would have that without boots on the ground in every part of the world and, and soldiers managing every other country on the world, we can only imagine what kind of grisly horrors are taking place in every other part of the world if we are not constantly pointing a gun at people. Right, right. And so uh, Brown discusses this at length, and uh, they also they also get into Cannibal Holocaust itself, and talks about sort of the the things that are important about it from a, a film history standpoint, but also you know why it is so notorious. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but I should be clear that Cannibal Apocalypse, uh, the film we're primarily discussing here today, doesn't really draw on any of these cultural cannibalism tropes, and seems to be largely exploring a concept, a model of PTSD as viral cannibalism. Yeah, despite the fact that it does uh, use all these tropes of Vietnam exploitation movies, really, I, I would say it is a domestic cannibalism movie. It's a, it's mm-hmm. about, uh, you know, the, the cannibals are all Americans. Yeah, I ultimately really enjoyed this model of cannibalism uh, that is deployed in this film. It reminds me a lot of the later film by um, uh, Antonia Bird's uh, Ravenous, which is a, a oh, yeah. wonderful, I guess, largely it's it's a domestic cannibalism film, kind of a frontier cannibalism film as well. Right. It's about all these uh, soldiers at an outpost in frontier California who are uh, switched on to the magical wonder of eating human flesh. Yeah. Yeah. Ultimately, even more of a vampiric model of cannibalism in that film. Well, that one also, I guess, does loosely draw on some rough like Wendigo mythology. But mm-hmm. uh, but then it's I think it's one of those movies where you kind of wonder, like, wait a minute, like, Within the world of the movie, like, is there real magic going on here or is this just like an idea that has captured and motivated the minds of the characters? And you could probably argue the same thing about this movie. Yeah. Now, Cannibal Apocalypse, though, is is about more than just eating human flesh and U.S. foreign policy. Uh, This film is also exciting for us because it is a Georgia movie. It is an Atlanta and Decatur movie uh, Mm -hmm. filmed here back uh, when that was something that was notable, you know, back when you weren't filming all these big blockbusters in the state of Georgia. Uh, There actually were a good number of Italian horror films shot in the U.S. South, though, right around Mm -hmm. this time, like uh, Lucio Fulci's The Beyond, which he shot in New Orleans, set Mm -hmm. in New Orleans, or like uh, – I think it was also Fulci who made um, City of the Living Dead, uh, also known as uh, Gates of Hell. Is that Savannah? Uh, Yeah, that was in Savannah, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, which I actually – watched uh just earlier this year yeah there's also the the wonderful uh film the visitor which is very much filmed in atlanta yes. around the same time same time period that um, is a the god talk about weird house that is one of the most bizarre movies i have ever seen in my life i mean that one will make you leave your body <laughs> yeah we may have to come back to that one that's a fun one so uh so yeah if you're a if you're a local if you have any connection to uh, atlanta georgia or, or decatur uh, Georgia, uh, it's worth watching because there's a lot of a lot of local uh, locations that are used, including the Decatur Marta Station, which I was looking this up. This film came out in 1980, and the mm-hmm. station opened 
uh, June 30th, 1979. So it's like a fresh, spanking new MARTA station there, uh, that, uh, which MARTA is the, uh, the train system here in Atlanta. Uh, but, but yeah, you get to see it uh, fresh and new and, and uh, you know, unsoiled by, by cannibalism. Oh, I just thought of another one that I forgot to mention earlier, though this one is actually not Italian. Some MARTA stations appear in uh, in uh, Escape from New York, John Carpenter's movie. Uh, one of the uh, MARTA stations here in town is extensively featured in a sequence that was cut from the movie that involves uh, Kurt Russell robbing a bank at the beginning of the movie or – Maybe sort of like digitally robbing a bank. I think he like steals computer stuff. Um, but he like gets on a MARTA train and then like rides it to a station and then him and his co-conspirator are ambushed right in the middle of a MARTA station by a bunch of police. <laughs> that's how Snake gets caught. Oh, yeah, yeah that's right. Um, and, and to be fair, there are some other Georgia horror movies of note uh, from back in the day. I think Squirm from 76. I think that was a, a mm-hmm. Georgia movie. And oh, I'm trying to remember the name of the one that's uh, set at the beach. Um, oh man, I was just down there recently, and I, I had—I I think I even sent you a picture of one of the locations. Oh, was it the Slayer from Tybee yes. Island? Yes, from Tybee Island, the Slayer, uh, which is which is actually quite good. Uh, maybe even too good. It could have—it could have been a bit uh, crappier, and that would have been probably been better for the viewing experience. It's—it's it's pretty seriously serious-minded, but it's a—it's a fun view. So if you ever—if you ever find yourself out on Tybee Island, enjoying uh, you know beach vacation, bring a copy of the Slayer with you. Okay, so what's the elevator pitch on Cannibal Apocalypse? Green Beret, Norman Hooper, or is it Hopper? I guess it's Hopper. Hopper. Oh, yeah, because it's like Dennis Hopper. Green Beret, Norman Hopper, survived the Vietnam War, but he brought something back with him, a stress-activated viral hunger for human flesh. Let's hit that trailer audio. Cannibalism. Vietnam vet, barricaded in the flea market, taking pot shots at the cops outside. Okay, that's enough. Wait a minute, please, please try to understand. Listen to me. While she was here, I, I had this urge to bite her. To bite her, you understand, like Bukowski. Ah, it's so good. It's so good. I I love the music in this film. I can't wait to talk uh, in more depth about the music. The music is great. And uh, some of the musical choices, as is common in uh, Italian movies of this period, are quite hilarious in their their deployment in the film, despite being pretty great on their own. Mm Mm-hmm. But first, let's talk about let's talk about the director, uh, the writer, and some of the some of the cast. So the director here is Antonio Margheriti, uh, director co writer, lived nineteen thirty through two thousand and two. Um, I believe you're you're very familiar with one of his other works. Oh yes, so he's the director of Your the Hunter from the Future from nineteen eighty three. <laughs> so a few years after this one was made, that is a Conan the Barbarian ripoff, a, a leather diaper barbarian movie starring Reb Brown, the guy from Space Mutiny mm-hmm. who screams. You remember him? Oh yes, he's a all time great muscle bro. And in this movie, he's playing the Conan. But I like how this movie mixes 
cheap barbarian ripoff movie with dinosaurs and science fiction. So it has aliens and robots and spaceships. And the villain at the end of the movie is basically Darth Vader. <laughs> well, it, it makes sense for Margaretti because he, he worked in pretty much every genre. He did Vietnam War movies, horror movies, sci-fi movies, and more. Yeah, I think he's widely considered sort of a an, a, an ultimate top tier schlock granddaddy. Uh, and <laughs> in fact, he gets he gets name dropped by a lot of other film nerds and stuff. And if you are not familiar with these uh, Italian schlock movies, but you recognize his name, Antonio Margheriti, that might be because you have heard him name checked in movies by Quentin Tarantino. For example, in Inglorious Bastards, Tarantino has a character who is assuming a false name uh, as and pretending to be an Italian uh, uh, camera operator, I think, say mm-hmm. that his name is Antonio Margariti. <laughs> I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. He, he did it all. He did, did, like, you can pretty much name it, and he did it. Did he do a 1989 underwater horror movie? Yes. He did one <laughs> called Aliens from the Deep. So many of those. Did he do uh, a Hercules movie? Yes, he did a couple of them. Oh, yeah. I think he actually did a number of them. Uh, so the, the sword and sandal movies, as they're often called in the States, uh, they're, they're often referred to as peplum movies in the uh, in the Italian press, uh, I think named after sort of like the Greek garment that the Hercules type character, or the Ercole character would wear <laughs> uh, in these movies. Uh, uh, the, these were really popular in Italian cinema from like the mid 50s until the early 60s, I think. They, like, mm-hmm. they absolutely dominated the Italian movie scene at the time what marvel movies are today peplum movies were to italian movies in the in the 50s through the early 60s and and he definitely made a few yeah i mean he also did literary adaptations he did a treasure island adaptation (laughs) okay he did a christopher lee horror movie titled horror castle in 1963 he did a number of science fiction movies that I think are considered I, – I haven't seen any of them, but I think they're considered less over-the-top and grotesque than a lot of his later works. Uh, and they're, it seemed to me like they're sort of like competent, pretty solid, well-grounded, well-executed sci-fi movies from the 50s. Yeah, that would be interesting to explore. I, I'd, I'd read that he, he did special effects as well, including working on 2001 A Space Odyssey oh, uh, in, okay. in the special effects uh, department. But um, – uh, yeah, he, he uh, also I should note that even though his his name carries more weight today, he generally worked under the um, the moniker Anthony M. Dawson. You know, you had to Americanize that name. Right, right. A lot of a lot of Italian uh, people in film, not just directors, would have a sort of anglicized pseudonym that they would release their movies under. I don't know if that was designed to make them seem more appealing to English speaking audiences. Uh, but so, yeah, he would be Anthony M. Dawson. I think I read somewhere that he sometimes directed under the name uh, Ant- or Tony Daisies or Anthony Daisies, which uh, is what Margariti actually means, Daisies. Uh-huh. So he's co-writer on this, but also we have uh, Dardano Sacchetti, who was born 1944, Italian screenwriter who worked with, oh, just about all the big names in, in the, you know, the, the, the sort of B-movie uh, schlock uh, market. He worked with uh, Lombardo Bavo, with Lucio Fulci, with uh, Enzo G. Cast- Castellari, uh, Dario Argento. Uh, in fact, his first credit was Argento's The Cat of Nine Tales. Ah, that one, despite what you would guess from the title, is about genetic engineering, I think. <laughs> huh, I've never <laughs> yeah, seen it. it. It involves a murder that takes place in like a genetics lab in the 70s, which is very strange. Hmm. 
Uh, and I think it shares a cast member with this movie. Now, he worked with Fulci a lot, including some of his most well-known films, such as Zombie, uh, House by the Cemetery, The Beyond, New York Ripper, Manhattan Baby, etc. Uh, he worked on Bava's Monster Shark and Demons, and he worked on um, uh, Castellari's 1990 The Bronx Warriors. So he's, he's just an important name in Italian B-cinema. You're gonna, you, if you start watching B-movies from Italy in this time period, you're going to see his name. Now, the next person we got to introduce for this film is uh, is, a, is someone who is born by the name of Carmine Orico, though you might know him better as John Saxon. That's right. I believe he was the the son of Italian immigrants, if, if yeah. I recall correctly. Yeah, yeah he's, he's Italian-American. He was born in New York. I think his father was a was was a dock worker in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. He, if you have been listening to our Weird House Cinema episodes, you will remember he was our villain in Hands of Steel, uh, just a legendary American B-movie actor. Um, he was in close to 200 pictures. He, uh, he, he was born in 1936, uh, died in 2020, um, but had a very long career. Uh, he started out in some beach hunk movies, I guess you'd call them, in the 1950s. Yeah, oh, yeah. And uh, he went on to be in some really iconic uh, films. He was in the original A Nightmare on Elm Street, playing Nancy's dad. He was in uh, Enter the Dragon, of course, had a huge role in that opposite Bruce Lee. I think that is in some ways considered his big breakout role. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, he it, it, it's an incredible role. Uh, but yeah, he, he's a guy that was he, always working. So he, the films were not always top shelf, mm-hmm. but... He, he he always brought this quiet intensity, you know, he has these really piercing eyes. We already talked about it. He has kind of a, a grounding um, acting presence in a film. Yeah, he I mean, he's one of these people. Actually, I think Tim Lucas talks about this in his commentary track that Saxon operated at the boundary between a cinema and B cinema. And it seemed like he had a choice where he could sort of be a supporting player in a cinema or he could be a leading player and the top name in B cinema. And it was around the time of this movie that it seemed like he just fully embraced I'll be top billing guy in B movies. Yeah, I I was reading an interview with him uh, that was from a uh, 2002 Dutch fan convention where they were talking to him. And he was talking a little bit about working in Italy. Uh, he mentioned that, you know, he spoke some Italian, mm-hmm. uh, you know, enough to get by. But he was I, I took from this interview that he wasn't like truly fluent. Sometimes I see like on IMDb, I see factoids about him being fluent in Italian. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that was necessarily the case based on his, his own words there. Because he talks about there being uh, communication issues sometimes um, between Italian directors who did not speak English or very good English in the cast. Right. Uh, but he says that in these Italian films, he was often given just a lot of room to do like what he wanted with a role. Yeah. Um, and part of that might have been that they couldn't communicate with him that well um, or that maybe they were a little in- intimidated because, again, he's this this uh, boundary walker between A film and B film. And a lot of these guys, I mean, they knew they were making a B film. Oh, yeah. Uh, and so no illusions he, there. Yeah. yeah. And, and here's John Saxon. We're paying money for John Saxon. We're going to let Saxon do his thing. You know what I had forgotten is that John Saxon has a prominent role in Tenebrae, uh, another uh, a, a famous Italian giallo movie made by Dario Argento. Some people consider it uh, Argento's best movie or one of his best movies. I, I'd, I'd put it maybe like fourth or fifth, but uh, mm. but yeah, it's good. That's one I haven't seen it uh, yet, but I've listened to the soundtrack before. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Good soundtrack. If you see Goblin live, they will play Tenebrae, definitely. <laughs> 
Now, that uh, 2002 interview from the Dutch Fan Convention, um, I was reading it on a site titled The Flashback File. Um, if you just look for John Saxon interview there, you'll find it. Uh, but he has a wonderful little story about this film that I think is very revealing. So I'm, I'm going to quote here. This is yeah, a quote well, from John this Saxon. This is a good one. Yeah. Let me tell you about that film. It's a real funny story. When the script came, I thought it was interesting. It was talking about the Vietnam War like it was a virus you could bring home. I thought it was a great metaphor for a psychological condition. So I went down there and I met with Antonio Margaretti and I told him how I really liked the script. He said he did not. <laughs> I didn't understand why he would say that, but I didn't ask him. Turns out I got an English translation of the Italian script, but the translators weren't very good. They just left stuff out. Oh, but no, I, we got babble-fished <laughs> into a role. <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, and he says, uh, but I only found out that that when we were actually shooting. I thought it was just one guy biting another guy and the virus spreads, but at one point we were shooting a scene and a guy brings in this tray of meat. I asked what it was for, and they explained... To, to me, it was supposed to be body parts, even genitals, and we were supposed to gnaw on them. <laughs> he continues, I asked Margaretti to take me out of the scene, and I went to my hotel room. Ugh. Once I found out what the true nature of the film was, I got so depressed. I had three days off, and I flew to New York, and all the while I was dreading uh, to go back there. I've never seen it, and I tried to forget about it. But in 1984, I met with a Korean producer who wanted me for a film. And he said, you know, your film is a big hit in Korea. I asked him which film. Yeah, that one. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> but even in observing the difference between this story and the final film, you will see some of John Saxon's influence in saying, like, no, I'm not doing that. Because here <laughs> he's being asked to gnaw on entrails. And he never does that in the movie. Other characters do, but uh, Saxon, I do not think you ever see him with any kind of meat in his mouth. No, I think the most he ever does is he wipes some blood off of his mouth, you know, so it's implied that yeah. he engaged in cannibalism. Right. It is implied that he does all kinds of horrible things, but off camera. Yeah. All right. So again, Saxon plays Norman uh, Hopper. And then his wife in the movie, Jane Hopper, is played by Elizabeth Turner, an Italian actor. This was her last film. Uh, she was also in Fulci's The Psychic. She was in a truly throbbingly bizarre movie called Beyond the Door uh, that came out in 1974. Though, So she's credited as being in that film. But then again, I don't really remember her from it. And it's possible that big parts of her performance may have actually been cut out of the movie. Uh, but anyway, I'll, I'll leave that for you to sort out. Anyway, Beyond the Door, uh, it's worth saying, is a, a fascinatingly weird, blatant ripoff of The Exorcist released just <laughs> a – so The Exorcist came out in 73. This is 74. It's set in San Francisco, but of course it is actually super Italian. Uh, I feel like we should get a sting from the trailer here. Let's hear it. Where demonic possession lives and evil penetrates the soul. Step inside, if you dare. Who are you? Jessica has gone beyond the door. At first, she didn't believe, but she does now. No one must attempt to interfere with her pregnancy, you understand? The child must be born. Beyond the door, where demonic possession lives and grows and grows and... 
beyond the door. We dare you not to believe. It's a demon possession movie, but the weirdest thing I remember is a scene where there's a couple – the main couple in the movie are – they're like having lunch out on a uh, on a patio and they're discussing what to name their unborn child. And the woman says with great passion, what about Steve? <laughs> oh, oh, no man. offense to people named Steve or Steven, but I don't know. That, that seemed really funny. Well, the trailer is great. I've I've never seen it, but in in looking it up, I I do see that it's another one of these Italian franchises of mm-hmm. sorts, where you have otherwise unconnected or un or, or you know just unconnected films that have been relabeled in some cases mm-hmm. uh, in order to loosely be a franchise. I think this one may have actually been such a blatant ripoff of The Exorcist that there were some legal troubles. Oh, wow. But all that aside, I mean, who can resist going beyond the door? (laughs) All right, let's move on to our next actor. This is um, Giovanni Lombardo Radici. Did I hit that right? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, This is the guy playing that that character named, again, Charles Bukowski. Like, I think this is just a direct nod to the author. Um, I, I was trying to understand, like, what the what the connection might be. And I think basically the idea is that Bukowski was a writer who was, uh, you know, he, he was sort of self-characterized as an outsider. His whole thing was like, well, you know, I, I need drugs and alcohol to cope with the fact that I have horrible memories of my experiences throughout life and that I don't fit in in society. So just somebody who's, uh, embracing the role of an unaccepted sort of despised outsider who doesn't fit in. Okay, that matches up. So, uh, Radici, again, an Italian actor, born 1954, uh, as of this recording, still at it, played a, a lot of sleaze bags in his career, especially his early career, uh, and, and was in more than one cannibal film. Yeah, he was in, uh, I think he is in a very famous, disgusting gore scene from uh, Fulci's City of the Living Dead, in which he gets like a power drill to the head. Okay. Yeah, I noticed he's also in Joe D'Amato's Cannibal Love, uh, acting alongside Big George Eastman. So that's that's exciting. He's also in The Church by uh, Michele Suave. Oh, yeah, that's a good one from 1989. Uh, and yeah. he's also in Umberto Lindsay's Cannibal Fierox, a film that proudly boasted that it was banned in 31 countries. That's another one of the cannibal movies that I have never watched. Yeah, yeah, same here. But not, it's not on my list either. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, this is a cannibal apocalypse, though, and this was his first film. Uh, but he, he's gone on to have quite a career, including showing up in a couple of big U.S. pictures, the 2006 reboot of The Omen, uh, which falls in line with some of what we're talking about here. But also he has a role in Martin Scorsese's Gangs of New York. Oh, do you remember who he plays in that? He's pretty far down the list. I think he, okay. he, but he has a name. His character has a name. Um, he's just, I, I'm assuming one of the Italian characters. I haven't actually seen Gangs in New York, so I can't, I can't be more specific than that. Oh, okay. All right. Another actor in this, we have uh, Senzia Di Carolis, who plays Mary, the neighbor, born 1960, an Italian actor, again, a former child actor. I think she was 20 at the time uh, that this film was put together, mm-hmm. uh, but she had already been in uh, Argento's The Cat of Nine Tales. She, was, she went on to be in an Italian TV bio of Helen Keller, and I believe she's worked as a, um, as a dubber, dubbing, um, helping to dub various like uh, uh, English language films, for instance, into Italian. 
We also have uh, in this film Tony King, uh, also known, I think, uh, more properly known today, is Malik Farrakhan. Uh, he plays Tom Thompson, a vet. He was born in 1947. He played for the NFL on the Buffalo Bills, I think, for one season in 1967, I believe. And then he went on to act in a lot of B movies throughout the 70s. He's been a not, political. Not act- just B movies, though. He's done. Oh, no, like- no. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, he did a lot of B-movie work, but he also pops up in Shaft. I believe he has a a brief, maybe uncredited role in The Godfather. Godfather, yeah. He was in The Toy. He was in Sharky's Machine. (laughs) With Burt Reynolds. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, And I I read that he also served, and I think perhaps still serves, as uh, the hip-hop group Public Enemies' head of security. Huh. Uh, there's apparently a documentary about about him in the works titled The Long Road Project. So check that uh, out. It's thelongroadproject.com. He's great in this. Yeah, he is. All right. We also have uh, the character Dr. Phil Mendez, played by uh, Ramiro Ol- uh, Oliveros, who was born in 1941 and is a Spanish actor. It's, it's worth driving home. I'm not sure if I mentioned this already, but this is a Spanish-Italian co-production. Um, so here's our Spanish presence in the film. He's known for such titles as The Swamp of Ravens and Black Commando. Tim Lucas's commentary track pointed out the distinctive Italianness of the inappropriateness of this character. <laughs> this guy who ostensibly in, an- in another version of this movie would be able to kind of be the hero of the movie, like the person who uh, can can like step in and intervene. Instead, he's just like he's just wrong in every possible way. <laughs> he is. Uh, we'll, we'll get to some examples here in a yeah. second. Now, one thing about this film is that it's it's filmed in Atlanta for the most part. I think they shot some uh, tunnel sequences in Rome, but mm-hmm. and not Rome, Georgia, but Rome, Italy. So it's very much filmed in Atlanta, and it is set in Atlanta, not in like a hard way. They don't say things like, what will this cannibalism do to the city of Atlanta or anything of that nature, but they don't yeah. hide the fact, and they seem to embrace on some level that it takes place here. That being said, we have a number of Italian actors who are clearly dubbed, including a couple of them, at least, that have just ridiculous (laughs) southern accents, like like country lawyer chicken accents. Oh, my God. Foghorn Leghorn, the the Dr. Foghorn Leghorn at the (laughs) psychiatric hospital. That was so funny. Um, I don't know the actor's name, but I think he was an Italian actor who looks just the slightest bit like I forget the actor's name, but the guy who plays the president in Clear and Present Danger. You know that guy? (laughs) Um, Donald Moffat? Yes, yes. Oh, also, he's in The Thing, the captain in The Thing. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I do agree. When I was watching this, I was like, he looks like somebody. And I I looked him up and I was like, oh, he's, he's an Italian actor I've never heard of. Yeah, yeah, just slightly like in the eyes looks like him. But anyway, he's like many characters in this movie and many other Italian movies of this period, totally dubbed. So you don't know what his real voice sounds like, but they dubbed him with this guy with the the most hilariously implausible Southern accent ever. <laughs> and sometimes edges almost into Cajun accent where yeah. he's at the, the hospital, you know, treating somebody who's been bitten by, by a cannibal. And he is like, I'll guarantee that, you know, he sounds like <laughs> Paul Prudhomme or something. Yeah, it's ridiculous. So you have a lot of that going on. Yes. But, uh, but again, not every actor is dubbed. So you have this, this weird exception that makes those accents even more ridiculous because you have uh-huh. this actor, Wallace uh, Wilkinson, playing Captain McCoy of the Atlanta police. And he is not only an actual Southern, he's an actual, he was an actual Atlanta native uh, who lived 1927 through 2001. Yeah, so he plays like the hard-edged police captain in this. 
Yes. And he has some some wonderful lines in it, some some hilarious lines in the film. So he's a he's a real pleasure. Uh, he was, of, uh, of course, well, it goes without saying, he was in 1979's The Visitor, uh, that other one of the other Italian movies set in Atlanta. Like the t- it just lines up too well. You know, he would have to be in that one as well. The cast in that one is so weird. So it has like people. It's got Franco Neri as uh, as like a space Jesus in it, mm-hmm. but then it's got Sam Peckinpah, the director, playing yes. a doctor in the movie mm-hmm. for no reason that I can discern. He's just like, "Hi, I'm a doctor." I think he just gives somebody like a prescription, and then the scene's over. Yeah, yeah. You got John Huston in that one. You've got uh, Lance Henriksen showing up. Oh, that's uh, right. It's yeah. got a weird cast, I believe. There's a there's a particular uh, long running, um, or I think he's retired now. But there's a particular political radio host that was Atlanta based that pops up in it for no real reason. Oh yeah, this yeah, is a yeah. background extra. Oh uh, yeah, right wing radio guy Neil Bortz. Yes, it? yeah. He's just I think he's just in a in the background in like a boardroom scene or something. All right, so Wallace Wilkinson, he's fun in this. Um, this doesn't mean anything to me, but I'm going to pass it on. There's a, a character in it that's just called Brunette Jogger, played by Laura Dean, and apparently she is Sophie from Friends. I never watched Friends, so I don't know how meaningful that is. I, I don't really know Friends, so sorry. Okay, well, Friends fans, you can just take that and run with it then. Uh, but then finally, let's come back to the music. Oh, boy. Yes, yes, the score of Cannibal Apocalypse is by Alexander Blocksteiner, who lived 1930 through 1985. And for my money, this is one of the real stars of this picture, uh, because this is just a fabulously like funky disco score. It's just absolutely tremendous. It may not always feel completely at home in this picture, at least for a lot of our, uh, our, our listeners out there. Uh, but it's impossible to imagine this movie without it. It has some synth delights in there. Uh, it has some spooky bits that feel very much in keeping with Italian horror, but it has to be the funkiest horror movie score ever, and it also has a saxophone love theme. I know what you're saying, but actually th- there's a thing I wanted to talk about uh, regarding the music. I-, I was going to bring it up later, but maybe I'll get into it right now. Yeah, let's do it. This is also something that Tim Lucas pointed out when commenting on uh, the opening sequence of the movie that takes place in Vietnam. Uh, and it's something that's true of that scene in this movie, but also just more broadly true of Italian movies of this period generally. There is this weird cultural disconnect between Italian sensibilities for the uses of different types of music and genres of music versus American sensibilities. Many Italian directors of the 70s and 80s have a distinct predisposition to take a scene of high tension, terror, and suspense and choose these exact moments to let the musical score get the funkiest. (laughs) And this always elicits laughter from American audiences because, I don't know, I mean, it just doesn't feel right. Like, funky bass and saxophone is not really what would seem to heighten the effect of a scene where someone is creeping up on somebody else behind them with a knife or something. Mm -hmm. Uh, But for some reason, this made sense to the Italians. So what is going on here with the intended effect of funky music? I I don't, don't, don't hear funky music and think, oh, wow, I'm getting really nervous. I think I have a theory on this. I don't know if I'm correct, but uh, because certainly there are people that are, have more expertise in the, the genres uh, involved here. But I think part of it might be might come down to the disconnect regarding disco culture between hmm. um, the Italian market and Europe in general and the United States. 
because disco obviously exploded in the States. Uh, but there was this, uh, for a long time, there was this kind of disco backlash. And I feel like a lot of us grew up exposed to that backlash, you know, jokes about disco and about disco being dead and, and being lame to some extent, right? Oh, yeah, sure. Yeah. Yeah. But, but in Europe, disco never really died. And horror disco was able to, to sort of thrive and evolve as its own uh, genre or subgenre. Um, and it is, it is actually doing quite well today with a lot of artists that were inspired by soundtracks just such as this one. So you, you can even check out whole labels. There's a wonderful label called Jalo Disco Records, um, which interestingly enough, put out a label sampler titled Apocalypse uh, Domani. That's really, really, really quite good. Huh. Well, I mean, I agree with your characterization of the difference, but like, yeah, I think clearly disco had a more sustained survival and popularity in, in European culture than it did in American culture. But I don't know if that would really explain the disconnect within the movies, because I don't feel any personal particular disco backlash, and yet it still seems very funny. And I can imagine many other types of music that would seem equally funny to put in these types of like if you were to put in Simon and Garfunkel or some kind of like a folk music or if you were to put in uh, certain types of rock music I think like any of that would seem really not fitting with the tone of the scene and would be very funny to me maybe yeah but but I do wonder if there's something to this like the idea that that disco was allowed to thrive more mm -hmm. in Europe. And so European audiences might be just more exposed to a wider world of disco. Like disco is big enough in Europe and in Italy, perhaps theorizing here, uh, big enough to encompass horror and suspense. Whereas in the United States, we almost had this, this effort to eradicate disco. Hmm. And so it's just not growing in all the places it should. Hmm. Well, I'll keep an open mind about that. That's interesting. I could be completely wrong. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just throwing that out there. That's, a, that's what's going through my head. Well, either way, so as, as funny and incongruous as it does seem to me in its placement in the film, the, the funky disco tracks are just great. Yes. Uh, in fact, let's go ahead and, and listen to a quick sample from the score. This is one of my absolute favorite bits from it. And I should also throw in that the excellent Death Waltz Recording Company, they put out a really stunning red vinyl edition of this score, mm -hmm. uh, which you can still buy for you know, a reasonable price. And you can also get it on CD, though I don't think official digital versions are, are that easy to come by right now. Make the score of Cannibal Apocalypse your next Friday night. It's a it's a yeah, it's great. I mean, it's it feels a good time. If you did not know this was cannibal music, yeah. <laughs> I don't think most people would would associate it with cannibal. You'd be like cannibals. You'd think, oh, this is this is great. This is this is hitting yeah. the town music. I, I am at the discoteca. Yeah. About to go out, get steak eyes, French fries. I got lots of gas. <laughs> Full moon and a jumping tune. All right, so I guess we should uh, talk about a few elements from the plot. Mm -hmm. We mentioned already that the movie starts with a flashback to the middle of the Vietnam War, where you get to see some of the uh, themes I think the movie is trying to establish. Like, it is it is trying to 
depict the kind of cold brutality of the war in Vietnam. And, uh, but also that's a reason that it's kind of funny when the, the funky music kicks in in the scene. Mm-hmm. Um, but it sets up the plot by showing a couple of American soldiers who have been taken as POWs, uh, at a, at a Viet Cong base. And I think the implication is that they're, they're kept in captivity for so long and, and fed so little that they are driven to cannibalism, or at least that's what you were led to believe, uh, is is the causal factor at the beginning, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, so the the film opens with these uh, choppers moving in. This is the yeah. uh, the Green Beret team coming to ultimately rescue these people. And I should point out that the the Blu-ray of this that we watched is a, a wonderful Kino Lorber edition, um, and I believe a new 4K remaster from just 2020. It looks absolutely gorgeous, almost too gorgeous. Uh, because the yeah. it's just jarringly good quality for a, a cannibal movie. And you notice this when you cut back and forth between the actual film footage and uh, the stock footage of the helicopters. Yeah, I think the stock footage is originally uh, archival 16-millimeter news footage that was taken. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like actually from Vietnam, so it's showing helicopters landing and stuff. But it looks extremely grainy when held up against this nice restoration of, of the cannibal movie here. Yeah. So they, they, they're coming in for the rescue, and then there's this hellacious – there's a, a number of hellacious things happen uh, in quick succession uh, uh, that can maybe make it hard for some people to push on through this movie. Uh, because for, for one thing, they break the, the, the dog rule uh, pretty quickly. I, I want to oh, say yeah. we're maybe five minutes into the film. Oh, less. I mean, a few minutes into the movie, a, a dog explodes. Yes. Uh, so there's like a dog bomb uh, which, yeah, I got to say when I was like, I was like, oh, no. And then this <laughs> and obviously also like the battle in Vietnam uh, by being based on real events is sort of less uh, can be ta- it's harder to take in a lighthearted way like you can with the the biting and the eating of people in the rest of the movie. Um, so like the, I feel like definitely the first like 10 minutes or 20 minutes of the movie are are the most unpleasant part of it. Yeah, and there's a there's a sequence that's ultimately pivotal to the plot where the the Green Berets they have a flamethrower and the flamethrower hits. Um, it, it doesn't even appear to be a combatant. It's like a, a Vietnamese woman. Mm-hmm. She's on fire. It's, so it's a horrific like uh, burn suit stunt. Mm-hmm. And then she runs away on fire, falls into the pit where the two POWs are being kept, and they immediately start eating her body. Yeah. And then John Saxon, who is the leader of the Green Berets, or actually, it's kind of confusing because he's wearing a beret that would seem to indicate he is a Green Beret, but he's leading a group of soldiers who are not uh, mm-hmm. similarly dressed. So I'm not sure uh, what the composition of this this group is supposed to be. But they come in. John Saxon like opens up the 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 cage on top of the pit that these guys are being kept in while they are eating a human being. And uh, and he reaches down to to help these guys out. And what do they do? They bite him on the arm. Mm. And then as soon as they bite him on the arm, suddenly John Saxon wakes up. It was all a dream. But then he gets up and his his wife wakes up again. This is played by Elizabeth Turner. And uh, and she's like, oh, dreams again. And we see a scar on his forearm right where the bite was in the dream. So it was a dream, but it was also real. He is being haunted by the memories of what he saw in the war and what bit him in the war. And these are actually, I think, some of the best acting scenes for for John Saxon in this, you mm-hmm. know, where he has this real haunted look. It's him like getting up and wandering shirtless um, around his uh, his house 
and and uh, yeah, he's he's good in these scenes. He's in great physical shape, by the way, and I detect – I feel like I have a good sense for when this is happening in movies. I feel like you can really tell he wants to show off the fact that he is currently in really good shape while they're shooting this movie. Yeah, he was, uh, I he, think, 44 at the time. Yeah, but yeah he's he in his mid-40s, <laughs> jacked. He looks awesome. I think he was he was using this movie as, like, his dating profile. <laughs> <laughs> This is his profile pic. But uh, also the funny thing, so he gets up and he's like, well, uh, another haunting dream about the war. I guess I need to go take pills. Uh, so he goes to take pills and he like opens the refrigerator and just sees that there is just raw, bloody meat just out open in the refrigerator, not in a container of any kind, just dripping myoglobin all over everything mm-hmm. in the fridge is disgusting. Um, so he's doing that. Uh, you know, being troubled. And meanwhile, his Elizabeth Turner, his 100% dubbed wife, uh, just seems very irritated by his Vietnam flashbacks. And she starts flipping through a copy of Fortune magazine. <laughs> I have she to say that. the the meat in the refrigerator scene yeah. was a moment uh, where looking back in it, I, I can imagine this was a sequence where they originally they might have wanted him to to eat that meat or to drink yes. that meat juice. Uh-huh. And Saxon was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing and that. ultimately the film's better for it because it's not about him, you know, being a midnight, uh, you know, meat drinker and more about like the what's going on in his head when he's looking at it. Right. So I, I guess once again, we don't have to describe every scene in the movie, but I think you can probably guess the, the basic format of it. So John Saxon is still haunted by the war, and he finds out that the POWs that he rescued in his in his uh, dream sequence, of course they are real guys and they are about to be they're about to be released from a psychiatric hospital where they've been receiving treatment. And uh, one of them is this guy Charlie Bukowski and we follow him once he is released and uh, Pretty quickly, he so he like goes to a movie theater and starts watching a war movie that's just like full of violence and explosions on the screen and immediately starts biting people in the theater. He like bites a woman sitting in front of him. And then the cannibalism cycle kind of ramps up from there. And so one of the things that I thought was really interesting about this movie was the way that it actually in the the mechanics of plot development very closely mirrors zombie movies. Mm-hmm. Uh, because what normally happens in a zombie movie, uh, especially zombie movies that followed uh, Night of the Living Dead and followed the sort of formula established by George Romero, it is uh, you have a number of human characters and some zombies are roaming around. A zombie bites a human character. The bite makes the human character die and then they turn into a zombie and they start biting other people. This movie has essentially the exact same dynamic except without the death so you have a cannibal who you could think of as like the zombie. They are driven to bite other people. Once they bite someone, the bitten person has a sort of uh, has a sort of grace period where they are recovering from the bite, and then eventually something about the bite seizes them, changes them, and they start biting people in turn. And so I thought that was interesting that in an unacknowledged way, it is like a Romero zombie movie, except everybody's still alive. And to a certain extent, like even the characters who give in to the cannibalism are still human enough that you don't have that clear disconnect. Because I've often seen it pointed out by sort of zombie uh, critics that in the zombie film, there is there's no question what you do about zombies. You kill zombies. Brutal violence is the way you deal with the problem of zombies. And it's okay because the fiction creates gives you license to do that. Whereas uh, cannibals, as presented in Cannibal Apocalypse, 
uh, that's never the case. Like there's still mortal human beings that could conceivably be pulled back mm-hmm. um, even if they are, you know, drifting further and further into their uh, their cannibalistic obsession. You can almost see that several characters, especially John Saxon, struggling with the cannibalism thing. It's almost like they're conflicted about it. Like they feel the urge to bite and eat humans, but maybe they're resisting it for some period of time. Well, in the film, like he he was bitten a long time ago, and it's yeah. like he's been fighting it this whole time. And it's almost it's one of these areas that gets into where it's you know it's almost. Or perhaps you can go say it, it actually is like a clever um, commentary on sort of either modern life or the American condition that, you know, you, that we were all bitten a long time ago, ago and the sickness is already in us. The sickness is growing. And it's not a question of will we acquire the sickness, but will we give into it? Uh, you know, can we fight it off? And is it ultimately too much for any individual to fight off for too long? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And, uh, but there's another way of thinking about it, which is that, uh, so as you mentioned about the zombie movies, you know, a common criticism of them is that, uh, is that by creating the zombie plot device, you, you remove certain types of moral ambiguity from Mm -hmm. the film, you know, because like in the Romero setup, it's frequently emphasized by characters who have a kind of scientific authority or something that these are no longer your friends and relatives. They are not human anymore. They must be destroyed on sight. Mm-hmm. And characters are often punished for making the mistake of thinking that the zombies in these movies are still the person they were before they died. You know, they like try to reach out to their friends or relatives and and then they just get bitten. This movie almost posits that you could be a secret zombie, that -hmm. you could be a zombie, but that you could uh, still blend in with the living and that you could talk and you could seem like a normal person, at least for a while, as long as you're able to keep it under wraps. But at some point, your zombie nature will just sort of erupt out of you and then the biting starts. Yeah. Which, again, not to give too much credit uh, to this movie, I, I don't want to <laughs> overstate uh, its its thoughtfulness. But you could see that as actually a kind of, uh, you know, if you look at it the right way, as a kind of clever insight about the, the effects of certain kinds of trauma or experiences with brutalization, say, in a war. Yeah, yeah. I think, again, this is an area where... Um, Saxon and perhaps others, right? Isn't that mm-hmm. what the the commentary track indicated that they were? It wasn't just Saxon that were encouraging the director to maybe pull back from the um, from the visceral and allow some of the metaphorical uh, a little more room to exist. Yeah, yeah. They were, uh, Tim Lucas was saying, I think that Saxon and uh, and Radice as well were sort mm-hmm. of uh, were sort of the the angels on Antonio Margheriti's shoulder when making this movie. <laughs> I'm not sure who the devils were. Maybe he was his own <laughs> devil. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the screenwriter, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, uh, but also, so so that's the the kind of interesting, serious, thematic part. There also, there's just so much absolutely unintentionally hilarious stuff in this movie. Mm-hmm. Some of the dialogue and the dubbing is so funny. Uh, like, uh, especially one thing that really stands out to me is the character of uh, Dr. Phil, played by uh, Ramiro Oliveros. Mm-hmm. Almost every scene he's in is so inappropriate in a way that the movie <laughs> doesn't really seem to understand. Yeah, I mean, it's scenes where he's like, he's talking to um, John Saxon's character's wife, and uh-huh. she's like, I'm really concerned about Norman. Um, you know, he's having these dreams, and he's like, no, I totally understand. By the way, I'm still looking for my soulmate. Yes, you know? <laughs> yes, it's so good. There's one part, I can't remember the exact quote, but it's pr- this is pretty close. He's on the phone with her, and he says something like, 
I, I do not think you should be alone with your husband tonight. He may be on the verge of a psychotic break. You should have married me and not him. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, there are also some great lines that are that are that are not dubbed. Uh, for instance, um, we were talking about the uh, the Atlanta um, police chief character. Yeah. And uh, he has there's this one scene where the cannibalism has spread to police officers. And mm-hmm. so they're screaming and he rushes into this room and cannibalism has broken out. One character, a cop character yeah. is eating human flesh. And he says, oh, my God, put that down, son. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then I think later he says cannibalism. That may be in the um, the trailer that we aired uh, earlier on. In fact, oh, we were we were joking that he's like James Brolin as the Republican governor of Florida in the West Wing. Uh, you know, <laughs> he's like cannibalism. Boy, I don't know. <laughs> cannibalism. Big sigh. Um, there was another one more thing I wanted to mention about the plot before we move on. So, of course, you know, it's just kind of like a a spiral into cannibal hell as more and more people get Mm -hmm. bitten and sort of secret zombified, get turned into cannibals. But again, with the interesting difference from the zombie movies that they still retain rationality, that they can speak, that they can form and execute plans, that the cannibals seem to have the ability to collaborate, like they can work together with each other to further the, uh, the coordinated cannibal agenda. Yeah, and it almost is like it inst- like the once the the switch is turned in the mind. Yeah. You start working with the other cannibals because you know what life is about now. It's about that human flesh. Just in terms of technical filmmaking though, I thought there was uh, something worth pointing out which is that there is a central sequence of the movie that really stands out, and it's the entire flea market sequence with Radici in it. Yeah. Um, where So before this part of the movie, it, it, I think it starts maybe like uh, 20 to 30 minutes in, and then it just goes and goes for like 20 or 30 minutes almost in real time. And before this part of the movie, uh, there's just like a lot of bizarre and inappropriate tasteless stuff happening and then afterwards it's it's more in kind of like uh cannibal escalation mode but for this one middle chunk of the movie you just get this really tight very well executed high tension standoff scene with uh with this character played by radici this cannibalistic veteran uh sort of taking over a flea market with a gun and the police being outside and there's this whole thing where they're, they're trying to talk him down and get him out and I thought it was so weird to have this one sequence that just technically and pacing-wise is so different than the rest of the movie. Yeah, yeah, now that you mention it, it's definitely a, sequ- a se- section of the film that really moves quite along. I mean, yeah. in general, I feel like this movie kept me invested throughout. Like, it, Oh, yeah, yeah, it, it's, an, it's definitely not boring. Yeah, and it, I think a lot of it has to do, well, certainly with, the, with some of these, many of these sequences being so well-paced and, and in many cases shot really, really well. But, but also, the last third of the film especially, it, it goes in a direction I wasn't expecting and in general didn't seem to be setting itself um, in accordance to any particular cinematic pattern, at least one that I was familiar with. Mm-hmm. So I really wasn't sure how everything was going to play out. Yeah, and I, I think part of the unpredictability of the movie is created by having this chunk of the movie in the middle where or the early middle where suddenly the, the plot stops developing at the uh, at the kind of uh 
uh, fast, random pace of what was happening earlier, and suddenly everything slows down, and we get this real time, very, very technical scene that uh, uh, Tim Lucas in his commentary very much compares the way the flea market scene plays out to the filmmaking of George Romero, which again I think is a good comparison. It mm-hmm. has that kind of, um, I don't know, that real time. Uh, tactical step-by-step progression of the way that that Romero does a lot of sequences in, for example, Dawn of the Dead. Uh, you recall a lot of what's actually pleasurable about Dawn of the Dead is the kind of is, is seeing the characters execute a plan very much in real time, step by step, in a way that mm-hmm. uh, that feels very logical, and you have a good sense of place and and setting. And do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, the, all of that is definitely in play with the sequence. Uh, they, yeah. they, they do a really good job of of creating that environment and the like, the physical expectations of that space, um, and it, it it makes for a really solid standoff because you you know what the environment is. Like it's well established. So question before we wrap up, do you think the movie would have been better or worse if it did include a shot of John Saxon, just like housing raw meat? (laughs) I think it would have been worse because I think we would have, we we would have, it would have been harder to root for him if we had seen that, especially if we'd seen it early in the picture, even if it was just him be again, being a midnight meat drinker, that would have, I, th- I think it would have, it would have caused that, that slip to occur. And would, we would have a harder time thinking that he had a shot at, um, at a normal life anymore. Uh, so yeah, I think it ultimately it made the film a little less exploitive and, and allowed for the film to, feel a little more metaphorical for those who wanted to engage in that kind of experience. It's funny we keep saying this, though, about uh, about the ways that it seems to kind of like hit certain limits, uh, because in because once again, I mean, this is a gross cannibal movie that is like inappropriate and in bad taste in most ways you could imagine. Mm-hmm. But for some reason, you just keep noticing about it that it feels like it would have gone farther in that regard. And, you, and for some reason, it doesn't quite, even though it, it is already pretty gross and tasteless. Yeah, absolutely. And and once again, I, I think it's a far better film for those restraints being in place. Uh, and you still get to have all your bloody cannibalistic fun in this film as well. So again, it's not a family film. It still has plenty of gross and shocking scenes. My only uh, question in my own mind is whether it would have been better had George Eastman been in it as well, playing a cannibal. And on that, I'm not sure. I'm kind of torn. On one hand, I'm always up for a good uh, George Eastman appearance, but on the other hand, um, he is very much a, a harbinger of of that kind of excessive uh, mm-hmm. quality of filmmaking uh, that I feel like like his presence alone might have been enough to push the film uh, in, into the extremes that we're we're praising it for avoiding. Uh, when we saw the poster for this movie displayed on the uh, the menu screen for the Blu-ray, uh, so Rachel and I, she, she watched this with me, and uh, and at first when I saw the guy, I thought it was George Eastman, the guy on the poster. <laughs> but, you know, it's got a kind of yeah. uh, vaguely rendered anthropophagus kind of George Eastman appearance. Uh, yeah. But R- Rachel, uh, up, upon seeing it, was like, is this a Sasquatch movie? <laughs> but no, I think it's just supposed to be uh, – uh, what's his name? Radici. 
Yeah, there, some of the you look at some of the posters for this, and there's like another poster or maybe VHS box art. I'm not sure which that shows uh, John Saxon's face, and part of, half of his face is distorted into like a monster face, mm-hmm. which is totally not in keeping with anything you see in the film at all, uh, or even really in the the vibe of the picture. But uh, they certainly didn't have a problem presenting it on the you know the poster or the box art in some market or another. One last thing I have to mention before we finish. Uh, Rachel had a really good one. When I was explaining that I had realized the title comes from trying to uh, get some of the magic of Apocalypse Now, she suggested instead of Cannibal Apocalypse, they should have called this movie Apocalypse Chow. Ooh, that would have been good. That would have been good. Especially because that can double with like the Italian greeting. Yeah, yeah, like like Dog Chow and yeah, Chow. Okay. All right. I like it. All right. Uh, Well, we're going to go ahead and close it out there. Uh, Again, if you're wondering, where can I watch this? Well, I I think it's, as of this recording, kind of hard to find on legit streaming services. But again, that Kino Lorber Blu-ray is beautiful, and you can buy that wherever you get your films. Um, It's, again, just really great uh, remaster, 4K remaster of of the film. We rented our copy from Videodrome, Atlanta's last rental store, and I think it was meant to be because when I walked in there to inquire about the film, they were playing Trancers 3 on the, on the screens. <laughs> so uh so I got to talk briefly about the Trancers franchise with the with the owner. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's a great spot and if you want to check out more about Videodrome, you can go to videodromeatl.com or for their merchandise you can go to videodrome.tv. Are, are we coming back for uh, deep Trancer sequels on on Weird House? Me, I mean, who knows? We could do Trancers 3. I don't know about 4 and 5. Um but, you know, 3 3 is a possibility. Does three basically have uh, like street sharks in it. There is a there is a shark character. Yes, there's yeah. a fun <laughs> monster character that shows up, and we have uh, in keeping with the second transfers. There's a wonderful uh, villain role as well. Okay, that's staying on the list. Oh, but I think I actually know what we are doing next week, and boy, yes. is that going to be a treat. Uh, let's not spoil it. Do you want to tease anything about it? Of course not. No, I want it to be a surprise. <laughs> okay, all right. I, I'll just say it's going to be an incredible journey. <laughs> All right. Well, I won't even spoil it then at the uh, uh, at the blog post for this episode, which you'll find at samudamusic.com. Okay. Uh, but I will include some um, some clips and some samples and some links to some of the soundtrack stuff we've been talking about here. And if you want to catch more episodes of Weird House Cinema, the place to get it is every Friday in the Stuff to Blow Your Mind podcast feed, which you'll find wherever you get your podcasts. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is primarily a science and culture podcast. We run our core episodes on Tuesdays and Thursdays. But we run an artifact episode on Wednesdays. We run listener mail on Mondays. Rerun it on the weekend. And then on Friday, it's this. It's Weird House Cinema, in which we get to talk about a weird film. Huge thanks, as always, to our excellent audio producer, Seth Nicholas Johnson. If you would like to get in touch with us with feedback on this episode or any other, to suggest a topic for the future, or just to say hello, you can email us at contact at stufftoblowyourmind.com. Stuff to Blow Your Mind is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.